Hello and welcome to the Physician Assistant Exam Review Podcast, Season 2, Episode 2. Today we're going to talk about routine prenatal care and a little about active versus passive studying. My name is Brian Wallace. I'm the host and creator here at Physician Assistant Exam Review Podcast, and I could not be more happy to have you guys aboard with me again this week. I've gotten amazing feedback. Everyone's very excited about the start of the new show after almost a year, and I am thrilled to be back behind the microphone doing this. As I said, we're going to talk about routine prenatal care and a little bit about different studying techniques today. One of the things that we're going to find a little bit different right off the bat today and as we move forward is I'm going to have some questions right up front for you to think about as far as um, routine prenatal care and OB goes. And what this is going to do is it's going to prime your brain to start pulling up data and pulling up information. It's going to help you to retain more of the information that we cover today. I'll talk in more detail as we move forward um, throughout this season about these techniques and about some things I'm working on and why they work and why they help. You will find them a little uncomfortable as we start out. Asking questions up front beforehand, people are going to say, oh, I don't know this information yet. But just the physical act of stopping and thinking about the material helps you to retain it moving forward. Even if you get the questions wrong, even if you're not sure about the answers, as long as we go over the right answers in the next uh, few minutes like we will be doing, it doesn't negatively affect you. It positively affects you. It helps you, your mind to peg and create cues for this information. It helps you to hold on to it longer and better. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, active versus passive setting towards the end of the show, but for right now, we're going to jump right into prenatal care. All right, so these questions are going to, should be, if you've covered this before, this will sound very familiar, and if you haven't, just follow along and do your best. But the key here is we're going to be doing a lot more active material not just passively sitting and listening and letting the material slide through your brain and you hear it and you're not really paying attention. You're going to be starting to pay attention more. You're going to be starting to focus more and work harder on actually being actively an active participant in this podcast. So the first question is, can you come up with Nagel's rule for the date of confinement? Do you remember what that was about? What the information was for Nagel's rule for the date of confinement? Take a second, think it over in your brain. Here's a little bit easier one. What age is considered advanced maternal age? What age is considered advanced maternal age? Take a minute and think about it. And lastly, what are the five components of a biophysical profile for a developing fetus? What are the five components of a biophysical profile for a developing fetus? And remember what that had to do with. So Nagel's rule, advanced maternal age, biophysical profile. And we'll come back to those as we go through the the rest of today's uh, material. So terminology, we're going to start off today with a little bit of terminology for those of you who aren't in OB and haven't may or may not have covered it yet. Estimated date of confinement, EDC is the due date for the baby. Uh, Nagel's rule gives us the EDC. We'll talk about that shortly. LMP is the last menstrual period. Miscarriage or abortion can be abbreviated A, uh, uppercase A, lowercase B. Gravita refers to the number of pregnancies, and that's an uppercase G. Parity is the number of deliveries, that's with an uppercase P. And advanced maternal age is AMA, and that's going to be greater than 35 years old. Greater than 35 years old is advanced maternal age. You can refer to someone's uh, OB history in shorthand. It's easier to write out 
with your G's and P's, if you remember. So gravid is the number of pregnancies, G, and parity is the number of, pre- of, of births, P, and abortions, AB, like we just talked about. So an example here, a woman's OB history, and I'm going to have you try to put this together in your heads. Again, if you've covered this, great. This should be easy, and if you haven't, this will be the first time through, but that's okay. Think about it a little bit. A woman's OB history includes three pregnancies with a miscarriage between her two living children. How would that be represented in shorthand? So there were three pregnancies, one miscarriage, two deliveries. It would be G3, P2, AB1. And there's a lot of different ways, and you can break this out a little bit further, but I think for our purposes, just doing uh, Gs and Ps and, and, and abortion as one column will be most concise for us. How do you calculate due dates? Our estimated date of confinement, Nagel's rule, is EDC equals the first day of the last menstrual period plus one year plus seven days minus three months. Let me say that one more time. First day of last menstrual period plus one year plus seven days minus three months. Now, I always struggle with that, so there's a couple other versions because you're not going to be asked to come up with Nagel's rule as part of your pants or pantry. You're going to be asked to come up with the estimated date of confinement. So you can do first day of LMP plus 280 days. You can do first day of LMP plus nine months and seven days. Those are work out to be the same thing. They're just different ways of thinking about it. So some physical exam signs for pregnancy. We don't really use these so much in the office, I don't think, anymore, uh, because we've come up with some better testing methods. But Chadwick sign. Chadwick sign is the bluish coloring of the cervix, the vagina, and the labia due to venous congestion secondary to an increase in estrogen. This is typically seen about six to eight weeks after conception. Hager sign is a softening of the uterine isthmus, allowing palpation or compression of the connection between the fundus and the cervix. This is typically seen from four to 12 weeks after conception. So those are physical exam findings of early pregnancy. Patients are going to start their routine office visits in the very beginning. Uh, We're going to be checking things like the baby's movement, fundal height, fetal heart rate. Uh, Ultrasounds may be involved in some of these visits and possibly uh, vaginal examinations. At 6 to 28 weeks, patients are going to be coming in every four weeks. At 28 to 36 weeks, it's going to be every two to three weeks. And then at 36 weeks, it's going to be coming in every week. So for that last month or so, it's going to be every week patients are coming in for visits. In the first week or two, we can use ultrasound to detect fetal heart activity. In the first six to seven weeks, we get ultrasound for uh, heartbeat (coughs) visibility. You can actually see the heartbeat. At 10 to 12 weeks, the fundus height, it should be at the height of the pubic symphysis. So that's an important date. Fundus is at the height of the pubic symphysis, about 10 to 12 weeks. You can get heart sounds detected with a Doppler. And chorionic villus sampling can be performed here. We'll talk more about that in just a second. At 15 to 18 weeks, you can do a quadruple screen. We'll talk about that in a second also, or an amnio. And you're going to do a rubella titer. We're not going to talk about that much here. We'll talk about that more when we get into infectious diseases. 16 to 18 weeks, um, second time moms will start to be able to feel fetal movement, also known as quickening. At 20 weeks, quickening occurs for everybody. So at halfway through, everybody can start to feel the baby move. Second time moms will obviously feel it a little bit earlier because they know more what to look for. They're more used to uh, that strange sensation in their abdomen. Uh, so that'll be uh, about 20 weeks for everybody, 16 to 18 weeks for second time moms. At 20 weeks also, the fundus is at the height of the umbilicus. So you should be able to feel the fundus roughly at the belly button. And then from this point forward, fundal height should roughly correlate within weeks of gestation. So you should be able to measure that at your visits, and it should roughly match up with how long the patient's been pregnant for. At 28 weeks, we check for gestational diabetes, and we'll talk about that more. And at 35 weeks, we culture for beta hemolytic strep. So some simple uh, 
prenatal testing stuff for ultrasounds. Some of the things ultrasounds are useful for, and these are performed throughout pregnancy depending on indications, but they will give us information as far as fetal viability, uh, detect presence of more than one fetus. They'll give you the uh, location of the placenta, which is important if you're going to wind up doing, uh, well, to begin with, if the placenta is implanted over the cervical os, and then we'll, so we'll talk about that moving forward. Um, you want to know the location because that's going to wind up being a C-section. If the the placenta is implanted anteriorly and low, if you're going to wind up doing a C-section, you're going to want to know that information because you're, you're going to wind up with a very bloody situ- situation very quickly. So you're going to want to know where that placenta is, and ultrasound will be able to tell us that. You can check amniotic fluid levels. You can check the position of the fetus, whether it's correctly positioned or whether uh, it's in a breech position. You can get gestation, gestational age and due dates based off of ultrasound measurements, the weight and sizes of the fetus, you can detect fetal malformations, so cardiac abnormalities, cleft palate, hydrocephalus, spina bifida, and so on. A biophysical profile is done in the third trimester. It takes about 30 minutes or more for this test to be done. And what you're looking for is a few different things, breathing, movement, muscle tone, heart rate, and amniotic fluid levels. So that was our answer to the, to the question at the beginning. Breathing, movement, muscle tone, heart rate, and amniotic fluid levels. Breathing is one or more normal breathing episodes. You can actually see the kid trying to inhale and exhale. Movement is two or more uh, movements of the limbs, so arms and legs. Muscle tone is one episode of extension and flexion, so moving the the whole body. Heart rate, two or more accelerations of at least 15 beats per minute in a 20-minute period. And amniotic fluid levels, one or more adequate pockets of fluid. We're not going to talk about the measurements of those pockets. I don't think that's necessary for us. But just to know that you need at least one good pocket of fluid to pass for the biophysical profile. So that's a, uh, the things we do with, with ultrasound. Chorionic villus sampling. This is typically performed about 10 to 12 weeks. Um, it's a biopsy of the placental tissue used to obtain chromosomal information about the fetus. Indications here, the reasons why you would do this is there's a family history of a genetic disorder or you have an abnormal ultrasound, or perhaps if the patient is, or I'm sorry, if the mother is advanced maternal age, that may be enough for an indication. And what you're going to learn from this sampling of the placenta is whether or not the developing fetus has any inherited disorders, including sickle cell, cystic fibrosis, or Tay-Sachs disease. You can also be checking for chromosomal abnormalities such as Down syndrome, trisomy 18, those kind of things. That's the information you're going to get from CBS, and you're going to be doing that because you have a history of those sort of issues in the family, or you've got a strange ultrasound finding. The risks associated with CVS, um, you get a small risk of infection because it is an invasive procedure, and then there is a risk of miscarriage associated with it, which is about 0.7% to 1.3%, and that's about 3.5 times higher than the rate for amniocentesis. The key here, though, is you can do chorionic villus sampling early. You can do it at 10 to 12 weeks. Your quadruple screen, this is performed at 15 to 18 weeks. And this is a blood test done on the mom, and you get levels of AFP, alpha fetoprotein, and human chorionic gonadotropin, estriol, and inhibit. And the levels of these hormones in the mother's blood are used together to give you probabilities of genetic disorders in the fetus. So this is offered to every every woman. There, you don't, because it's just a blood test, we don't need to, and there's such little risk associated with it, you don't need special... Um, reasons to order this. You don't need a family history. You don't need anything like that. So, and what we're diagnosing here, actually, we're not diagnosing what we're looking for, what we're screening for are genetic disorders like Down syndrome and other trisomies. And this will give you a risk stratification of the, for the fetus using this test. Then if this comes back positive, you can go on and do something like an amniocentesis, which is uh, performed again at 15, 18 weeks, just like the quadruple screen. 
And this is where we go in and actually draw out amniotic fluid from the uterine cavity. So we use ultrasound, stick a needle into the uterus, pull out some fluid, and then we run some tests on that. And this would be indicated if you have, for one, advanced maternal age, a family history of genetic disorders, abnormal ultrasound, abnormal quad screen, or in a little bit different scenario, if you're testing for fetal lung development at 32 weeks, you can get some information from the amniotic fluid as to whether or not the baby's developed, whether its lungs are developed enough for it to be able to breathe if delivered early. What we're actually diagnosing with the amnio is going to be the same as with chorionic villus sampling. So you're looking for inherited disorders like sickle cell, cystic fibrosis, Tay-Sachs, and so on, or chromosomal abnormalities like Down syndrome and trisomy 18. So it basically does the same thing, except it's a little less invasive and it's done a little bit later. So this would be done sort of after the quad screen or a little bit later in the process. So some of the risks associated with with amniocentesis would be you can get some amniotic fluid leaking, although usually that's pretty self-limiting and not a significant problem. There's very little risk of injury to the fetus itself. You're doing this under ultrasound guidance and you're really not going to have a problem with the fetus. However, there is a slight increase in orthopedic problems and lung development in babies born following amniocentesis versus a control group. I couldn't get any real numbers there, but there is a slight difference in those. And there's also a risk of miscarriage associated with an amniocentesis. The numbers are about 0.2% to 0.3%. So again, very, very small risk associated with this procedure. And this is done to definitively diagnose uh, inherited or chromosomal disorders. So let's think for a second about how these three work together. Or four, you've got ultrasound, which is a non-invasive and can tell you a whole lot of information. You've got chorionic villus sampling, which is very invasive, but can get you chromosomal data and some information about the developing fetus. You have a quad screen, which is a blood test to screen for these things, but does not give you definitive diagnosis. And you have an amniocentesis, which is a little bit safer, but can't be done to 15 to 18 weeks um, of gestation, which will get you, some, again, definitive answers, but you have to wait a little bit. So that's sort of how they all tie together and how you want to think about these and keep them straight in your head and think about how and why you would choose to do one over the other. So if you have a patient who comes in and has family history, you may you may decide early on to go with chorionic villus sampling to get that information as early as possible. But if you have patients who come in with no history, nothing going on, but you wind up with this, uh, either a quad screen that looks a little funny or, or stratifies the patient at high risk, or if you have a ultrasound that doesn't look quite right that you can have concerns about, then you can go ahead and do an amnio to sort of get a more, to, to get a more definitive answer, um, a very definitive answer from that information. Our next step is oral glucose challenge, which is performed at 24 to 48 weeks gestation. Indications here is everybody gets this. You want to test every single patient for gestational diabetes. And this is going to be diagnostic for gestational diabetes. How this works, for, initially there's usually a screening. There's a couple different ways. And if you look into it, it's depending on which way you want to do this, there are a few different ways and a few different screening options. So the way, the one that I think is most reasonable and most used and came up in the most places was you start off with a 50 gram of glucose, which is administered orally. So the patients get this little, uh, cola drink, which is 50 grams of glucose. My wife said it tasted absolutely terrible, made her want to throw up, and you have to hold that down for an hour. And at the one hour point, your glucose should be below 140 when tested from a blood draw. The difficult part here, like I said, is for most women just keeping it down for the hour because if you throw it up, then you have to redo the test. This is just a screening tool. So if you're above the 140, then we go into the diagnostic tool, which is the patient comes in fasting and they're given 100 grams of glucose orally. So this is even worse than the other one. You have to do 100 grams of glucose orally. 
fasting should normally be below 100, right? So at an hour after taking this 100 grams of glucose, your sugar should be below 180. Then at two hours, they should be below 155. Then at three hours, they should be below 140. And if you fail any of those, you're considered considered to have gestational diabetes. And they start looking at things like metformin and insulin for you to help control your diabetes. Obviously, uh, gestational diabetes can have some issues with the children. The one um, one in particular that I deal the most with is uh, increased size for the babies. We wind up doing C-sections on a lot of kids who have gestational diabetes. In fact, I did a C-section yesterday, today is uh, two days ago, uh, on a kid who was nine pounds, uh, nine and a half pounds, and the mom had gestational diabetes. This was their third kid, and they were all about that size. Um, so you, <laughs> you definitely get bigger kids with gestational diabetes. So that well, and so those are usually controlled with metformin. If there's some reason why patients can't um, be on metformin, or if it's not controlling enough, then we move on to insulin to help control that blood sugar um, during pregnancy. And usually once the child's de- delivered, the um, the blood sugars come back to normal for mom. The downside is that long-term, there are at an increased risk for type 2 diabetes down the road, so it is something to watch in your patients. All right, so that'll give us pretty much enough information on uh, on prenatal testing. We're going to stop there with the with that information. What I want to talk about too, I've got two things left to talk with you about today. One is going to be our study tip, and we're going to talk a little bit about active versus passive studying. And number two is going to be we're going to do some review questions at the end here to make sure that you're refocused and paying attention, and you've had a chance to think about all the things that we've talked about today. First of all, active versus passive studying. This is something that I've come across that I can't stress enough. Too frequently, the the number one reason, the number one way that people study is is by rereading their notes, rereading their texts, reading review books. And this is a good way to learn something. It's not necessarily a good way to review something. And what I mean by that is when you read material and you're just passively sitting or when you're listening to me talk and you're just passively sitting and listening or reading, the information tends to go and slide through your brain. It doesn't necessarily stick and hang on to anything. And you feel like you know it, you feel like you're doing pretty well because it becomes uh, apparent to you and your brain starts to be able to see what's coming. And and this is called fluency and you become fluent with the text, you become fluent with the notes. Or if you listen to my show a couple of times in a row, you become become very fluent with uh, the material as I present it. The problem is you don't master the material, you don't really understand the core concepts and ideas you simply know the format that they're coming in. So your brain says, wow, I'm getting really to know this. I'm, I'm getting really good at this. And then when you go to take a test, you have no ability to pull the information out of your brain. You have no ability to reprocess the information if it's presented in a different way. And it's going to be because on a test, it's not presented the same way as it is in your textbook. It's not presented in audio format the way this is presented. It's The information has to be able to, you have to read a question, interpret it, go through all the things you know, pull out the relevant information out of your head and be able to put that back down on a piece of paper. That's a whole lot different than reading or listening to material. I had a physics professor in in college who used to say, man, you could watch me do these problems on the board all day, but if you don't ever practice them, you're not going to be able to do them, even if it looks really easy while I'm doing it. Of course it looks easy because I'm doing it. He would talk about Derek Jeter and say, geez, you could watch Derek Jeter take ground balls all day and it looks like it would be so easy to go out and do until you actually try it. So one of the things I, I strongly recommend is the idea of active studying. So passive setting is things like rereading notes, highlighting things, listening to this show. Um, we're working on making this show a little bit more active. Active setting is where you are actively using the information. You're pulling it out of your head. You're working with it. 
Anything you can do to struggle with the information, to work with the information, will help you retain it far more than anything that um, you can do with passive studying. Passive studying has been shown time and time again to really be a very little benefit, but nobody knows what else to do, so they keep rereading their notes. And the answer is to come up with more active ways of studying. So things like flashcards are great. Even just creating the flashcards is great. Um, things like reciting the information, rewording the information in your own words and telling and teaching it to a friend, teaching it to your dog. I know <laughs> I have a, someone who I spoke with teaches their three-year-old kids all about the material that they come home and they're learning. And this is a great way to set up the information in your head. You're actively putting it out there. You're actively pulling it from your brain and putting it back out into the, into the world, which is what you're going to have to do on the test. As we move forward, I'm going to give more and more examples and start presenting you with ways to actively study and to work your brain and to make these things stick better and better. But for now, keep this in mind. Keep keep the idea that you can't just listen to the lectures in school. You can't just reread your notes at home and highlight the lectures as you go. You need to actively be participating. So if that's writing your own questions, if that's teaching it to your friends and setting up a study group where you each take turns on a topic and then you have to present it, doing any of those things will make the material stick so much better and be so much more valuable to you. All of those take extra time and they seem like they're time consuming up front. But the end result is you have to review less and less because that material stays in your brain longer and is much easier to retrieve. It's been shown time and again that once you start, once you retrieve a piece of information, that pathway is now set up. So it's easier to retrieve it the next time. And each subsequent time you retrieve that information, it's even easier to retrieve it. So the idea of active recall, of going back and finding that information in your brain and pulling it forward is what helps you to be able to do that on a test. If you've never practiced in that way, if you've never tried to pull the information out of your brain, when you get to exam day, you're going to feel very lost that you've been studying and studying and reading and reading, but you can't come up with any of the answers because it's, doing, it's a whole different skill to be able to pull the information from your head than just to feel like you understand it when you're reading it. So this is the idea of active versus passive studying and something I'm really going to be pushing moving forward and something I'm going to expect you to be able to do even during these podcasts to help you remember and retain this information for longer and longer periods of time. That's part of what the exercise at the beginning of the show was, was to get you involved right off the bat. And speaking of which, we're going to move into this, some review questions and see if you retain and struggle with some of this information that I just asked you a few minutes ago. Strangely enough, there's also been a lot of data showing that the more you struggle to pull that information out and the harder it is for you to think it through, the longer you'll then retain it. A lot of times we think if things are hard when we're studying, that it's actually a worse method of studying. And it turns out that that's the exact opposite is true. It should be difficult for us. And if it's difficult, your brain is going to hold on to it for longer periods of time. And again, I'll elaborate more on that as we move forward. So let's jump into some questions. In the first trimester of pregnancy, how often are routine office visits? In the first trimester of pregnancy, how often are routine office visits? If you remember, that was every four weeks. Typically, when do when is amniocentesis performed? When is amniocentesis performed? Take a minute and come up with a number. I don't care if you don't remember it, just pick a number. And it's at 15 to 18 weeks gestation. A woman presents to your office who's currently pregnant. She has two children, three and five years old, and tells us she has had one miscarriage. What are her G's and P's? She has two children, three and five. She's currently pregnant and has had one miscarriage. What's the shorthand for her OB history? G4, 
P2. She's been pregnant four times and has two children. With the 50 gram oral glucose tolerance test, what level should the glucose be below at the one hour mark? Let me make sure that that's clear. With the 50 gram oral glucose tolerance test at the one hour mark, what level should the blood glucose be below? And the answer there is 140. So every four weeks, 15 to eight weeks gestation, G4, P2, and 140. And a quick review from the pretest. Nagel's rule, the answer was first day of less menstrual period plus one year, plus seven days, minus three months. Advanced maternal age is 35. And the five most common components of the biophysical profile, can you think of them? Breathing, movement, muscle tone, heart rate, amniotic fluid levels. All right, fantastic. So this was episode two, starting off with OB. We're going to pick up, we're going to continue with OB next week, and we're going to continue to review some of the material and make sure we're working on as much active studying as possible. So I want to make sure that you're bringing that into your regular routine and we're bringing it in here to the show. So until next week, I can't wait to look forward to see you then. Please let me know if you have your exam coming up. I'd love to hear about it. Let me know when you pass your test. I'd love to share it on the show. Thank you to everybody who's been uh, writing in with that information, people who have left the <laughs> left reviews in iTunes. Thank you so much for those. It's really, really appreciated. And I will see you in the next episode.